0: Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting because um, a lot of planners have done this. You know, the yep. new, new younger people coming into this profession feel like they have to do it on their own. I mean, a lot of us got started doing this on our own. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's different times today, that's all.
1: Welcome to Episode 20 of You're a Financial Planner, Now What? I'm your host, Hannah Moore, Certified Financial Planner and Owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Today I'm excited to share an interview with Scott Cahan. Scott has an incredible story and one that mirrors so many of the young advisors I talk with. Scott started a CFP program at NYU two years into his business when he was 27 years old, which is just crazy to me. He's been in practice 30 years, given back to the profession immensely, and has even implemented a retainer model to help clients who don't fit into the traditional financial planner business model. Scott is ahead of the curve, and I can't wait for you to hear his story. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Scott. My pleasure. Yeah. So first of all, for the listeners out there who don't know you, who is Scott Cahan?
0: Uh, I am a certified financial planner. I've been in this business since 1982. Pretty much started in it uh, out of college, uh, a year or so out of college, and I Worked for a large insurance company for about six months and realized this is not what I wanted to be doing, selling insurance and the, and the you know how they were training us to sell. Uh, worked for another financial planner for a period of time, then I started my own firm back in 1986. And the main reason was because I realized that I could not do what I wanted to do working for a large organization. It was all about sales, and back in the 80s there were limited partnerships and commissions were much larger. Uh, imagine an 8.5% load on a mutual fund today. I mean, uh, that's what was out there, and that's what we were encouraged to sell. And it just wasn't really uh, for me. I didn't feel like I could do the best job for the client. So went out on my own, started my RIA back in 1986 with the goal of building up a small firm with a few partners and uh, being able to really work closely with clients. And what we did, we uh, basically... As I was building, I was living, you know, in my uh, working out of my apartment in Brooklyn, got an office in Queens, got an office, next office, Long Island, that was in New York City, and now we have two uh, offices, one in Westchester, Chappaqua, and then a small satellite office that we use to meet with clients in in Manhattan. Uh, But the focus was always about how do I do what's best for the client, kind of acting as a fiduciary all along, and that's become the big topic today, uh, and gravitating away from commissions because it was hard to be starting out fee-only back uh, back in the 80s and early 90s, but gravitating away from that and to the point where we became a fee-only firm. And, uh, you know, we charged different fee structure. We have a retainer base versus an asset under management fee, which works well. Uh, but the bottom line was always about what's right for the client. And along the way, getting involved with different organizations, mainly back then the ICFP, which is the Institute of Certified Financial Planners, which was... One of the founding organizations as part of the Financial Planning Association, got involved locally, got involved on the national board, uh, went through the merger to create FPA, chaired a number of conferences. So I've always felt it was important to give back to the profession as part of it. And I'm also currently serving uh, as a trustee on the board for the Foundation for Financial Planning, which is a pro bono helping the underserved uh, with financial services or providing money to organizations to help them. Uh, but again, it, it's always been about giving back to the profession as well because you get a lot out of the profession and, you know, you learn from a lot of different people of all ages. So that's kind of it in a, in, a, in a nutshell.
1: Okay, you just went over a lot there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> okay, so I want to back up a little bit because okay. I think what's crazy, not to age myself or you, you started your RA in 1986. That was the year I was born. Okay. And so like that's, that's crazy to me, but so what I think is interesting, okay, what I'm curious is back in 1986, if you faced a lot of the challenges that I'm facing right now and a lot of my peers are facing. So one of the questions I've been asked a lot, um, is about age bias. Did you get a lot of that when you started your RIA?
0: Oh, yes. I mean, I was at that point, uh, you know, a young kid in a sense, uh, in my twenties and, uh, you know, you're trying to work with people who have money. And back then there was still, you know, what I was doing was selling term insurance and mutual funds. So the idea was that, you know, term insurance was cheap and you needed this. And mutual funds were paying back then commissions. Sometimes we charged a small fee just to do a little planning as we were, you know, getting started back then. Um, but it was very, it's intimidating and difficult sometimes to go to somebody back then who was in their uh, 40s, 50s, 60s or older to say, you know, I can help you because I didn't have the experience, and I didn't have the confidence. And that was a big issue. And people sense that when you don't have the confidence. Uh, little, I mean, they could see your age and the experience, but if you don't have that confidence, it makes it much tougher.
1: A lot of people now, like they start their own RA, and they're – I mean, it's like a several-year process before you even start making money. Did you find that that was the case with you when you started?
0: Yes. And somebody early on in my career told me to make sure that you've got – two to three years' worth of expenses put aside because it's not an easy task to start. And it's kind of like if you look at a, a graph, you have a flat line for a number of period of time. It could be a few years, and then it just kind of goes straight up. It doesn't actually go straight up, but it jumps quickly. Um, so, yeah, it's it's very difficult because the bottom line at the end of the day is you still have to generate revenue from finding clients and where do you find clients? And that's still, if it was 1986, if it's 2016, uh, it's still the same issue of I'm paid by my clients. If I can't get clients, then I'm not gonna make it in this business.
1: So how long did you go before you actually started making money? Like how many years was that?
0: Well, i am you know, my expenses are very low um, and I was working out of my house, so I was able to manage expenses and you know make a few dollars, but it was a, a few years and I, I, you know, it's funny because I have a chart that I used to keep and I still have it somewhere buried around in my desk showing every year of where my, my revenue came from because back then there was some insurance commission, there were some fees, there were mutual fund commissions and just tracking it manually over years. I mean, this is going back my first computer I got when I started my business in 1986 and I was in the business years before that didn't have a computer I mean technology and resources were much different back then Um, and I used to track it month by month but it was a few years I'm gonna say uh, probably a good two or three years before I started to see a little bit of profit there but it was still low in the beginning because the one thing I didn't want to do was go out and sell products that had high commissions and that's the thing that um, you know it was different back then there was a lot of opportunity and there still is today to sell whole life insurance or a big cash value life insurance policy where I can make a lot of commissions. I just never was comfortable doing that, so I took the longer, slower route to get to where I wanted to be.
1: So one of the things that you said was that you had done, you had set up an RAA just straight out of the gate. I mean, yeah. were, were you in the minority at that point?
0: Probably. I mean, most of the people I knew were um, people who were a little bit older. And I worked with another financial planner who was an RIA. He was a few years older um, on Long Island, and he had a small firm. I was actually working there as a manager. He was a general agent for an insurance and a broker-dealer. So I was helping to train a few people and, you know, getting a little extra from that. Um, but for the most part, I didn't, you know, I, there weren't people my age for the most part that I saw that was starting RIAs or going out independently at that point. Um even today, very few people that, you know, when I talk to them, people my age and, you know, I'm in my mid-50s, uh, very few of them started really right out of college. And that's where I feel, like, you know, some connection to the next gen, because people are coming out of college and wanting to get into this field, and that's kind of what I did. And the difference is back then, there were no financial planning undergraduate programs as there are today. I also, one other thing I didn't mention, I I was involved with the New York University uh CFP program. I started that back in 1987 after the CFP board was established and started to allow other schools besides the College for Financial Planning to offer the CFP program, and I was involved with NYU when I started that, and I was teaching that for a number of years and then switched to another school, and then uh, I stopped teaching. But um, So that was very helpful in my career as well.
1: So you started a CFP program and teaching a program five years into your career?
0: Uh, yes.
1: Like, that thats just kind of blows my mind a little bit.
0: Yeah. What it was was when the CFP board allowed other schools to offer the program, I and mean, there's a lot of history, which we don't need to get into now, and what want to, about the CFP and the, the lawsuit and with the College for Financial Planning and whatever. But the CFP board was created, which was back then the IBCFP it was called International Board of Standards and Practices for Certified Financial Planners um they then allowed other schools to be approved at, to offer the CFP program the exams were taken through the College for Financial Planning at that point the comprehensive exam didn't start until 1991 um and I was involved with NYU from somebody that I worked with and that's where they wanted to start a program was in the continuing ed and um basically they hired me to be the coordinator for it and I was teaching the CFP 1 program for years and uh I was writing the uh, course descriptions for their program guides. Uh, So I was, you know, basically running that program with somebody on staff there that was full-time staff as part of the continuing ed school. And I was there for about 12 years. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was a whole different world back then. There wasn't the competition in the sense of how many people out there that were really doing financial planning was much different, much smaller group. You know, everybody may have called themselves a financial planner, but what were they really doing was a whole different ballgame.
1: And for those of you who are listening, kind of this history of financial planning and the CFP board, and I know you mentioned the ICFP, we're going to be doing a lot more on getting people who really lived through that and sharing kind of those stories, because I think that we have such a rich, like heritage in the financial planning world that we just don't know and don't talk about. So thank you for bringing a lot of that up, Scott.
0: I agree with you. And there's a lot of that out there that should be, you know, people don't realize this profession is not 100 years old or, you know, as accounting and other professions are. It's it's really a, a shorter time frame. And there is a lot of history that isn't that people that are still in the profession went through and lived through. So I think it's great to share that at some point.
1: I mean, I'm eight years into my career right now, and I can't imagine three years ago starting a whole CFP program for NYU. That phrase, standing on the shoulders of giants, really, when I think about financial planning, really comes in strong. Um, So thank you, I guess, for your work that you did back in 1986 and 87, I think. It's really important. (laughs) Well, okay, let's go back to how did you find clients when you first started? Like, what was that like in the 80s? Back in the 80s,
0: uh, what we did was cold calling uh which i'm still surprised some people do today in fact there's my where i am in westchester across the hall there's somebody from edward jones who still does cold calling going door to door we went door to door Um, but i also was working with somebody who was had a tax practice as part of his financial planning and i started to get involved in doing taxes um i'm not a you know an expert in it but you know i was working in a firm that we could offer that service. And I was doing some of the easier tax returns. And I, one, I learned a lot, but two, it's much easier to build up a tax practice than a financial planning practice back then. And probably still is today. Um, because people, everybody needs to get their, most people need to get their taxes done. Uh, so bottom line is you can get a lot more referrals. And then you can talk about opening up an IRA, life insurance. And I remember we did a lot of, back then the law allowed $2,000 into an IRA. That was the maximum, and I remember we put them into a, an Oppenheimer fund, and we got a $96 commission, and, you know, it's, it's hard to uh, make a lot of money doing a lot of that. You know, you have to do a lot of that, um, but, you know, that was part of it, building that part of it up and the referrals, and I look back in my, my career to this day. I look at clients we've had for 20, 25 years and where they came from, and some of it goes back to those roots. The other part was teaching, you know, doing a lot of teaching, at NYU through that program. Um we also did in house training for Citibank, uh Chase. You know, these were people in the profession supposedly. Uh and we got a lot of referrals from people through that. Um so that was also a big part of the growth. And uh but it was basically just trying a lot of different things to see what was what would work. Um early on, you know, through a broker dealer I was with we did mailings for uh tax-free um, mutual funds, and, people, you know, a few people respond, and you got a couple of clients from that. So it's really just doing a, few di- a lot of different things and hopefully picking up a few from each area and then going from there and building the referral base, uh, which is much different than today. You know, a lot of people try to specialize with a certain group, a certain age group, uh, which sometimes may, may be better, may not be. It depends on the situation.
1: So you never really had that specific niche? You was just who, No um, whoever you could find.
0: Yeah, we never did and you know, I've I, I look I've gone through seminars and training over the years from all different sources of why you need to have this niche and, you know, specialize in this group and really zero in on the group. Um, you know, being in New York, I mean there's so many people out there. Our niche I guess was we and to this day, we work with what I would call high middle income to low high net worth clients. Uh, and, and, you know, someone says, well, how do you define that income-wise? I mean, our clients many times if they're working have, you know, nice six-figure salaries, but they may not have a lot of assets or they may have a lot of assets and they may be retired. But, um, you know, we look at it that everybody has a need for financial planning. And how can we fit that need? And if there's a way we can do it, to this day we have a fee you know, that we've developed for for smaller, uh, I'll say, clients or younger people who are professionals who have great incomes but don't have assets right now to manage. It's always been an asset under management uh, game in a sense, and to me, it's about financial planning first and foremost. So, you know, if you can show people that there is a need out there and get in front of people, you know, the referrals will come in building the practice.
1: Do you still charge an AUM fee, or do you just do a retainer fee, or how do you...
0: Yeah, we we have some yeah we have some older clients, what we call legacy clients that are still under the AUM model. Um, but all new clients, and this is going back probably about twelve, thirteen years uh, that we've started this. Uh, it's a, basically a flat fee we calculate, and what we do is we look at their total um, assets, investable assets. I don't care where it is, if it's in the bank, if it's in a brokerage account. We use Schwab as a custodian. Uh, but then we figure out, based on their total assets, not including their home and business, what the fee would be based on our fee schedule. We get half of the first year up front as an initial fee, and we start billing in arrears at the end of the first, uh, uh, after six months. So it's really nine months later that they're getting the first bill, in a sense, because they pay six months up front. The third quarter, uh, we bill at the end of that third quarter. And we lock the fee in for three-year period, which means if they come into inheritance, win the lottery, um, pull out a lot of money for a down payment on a home, our fee doesn't change. And it works well because clients like to know what they're paying. It takes away the emphasis of rate of return and an assets under management structure um, and really can get back into financial planning because we tell clients, this is what we're paid for. We're here to provide all the services. So if you want to keep the money in the bank, or keep it at the brokerage firm down the street and not have it through Schwab, that's fine. Our fee is based on all of that, or your 401k. And uh, I'm gonna say almost 10 out of 10 times, clients move all their money over to Schwab. That can be moved because they realize they're paying somebody else a fee at another firm to manage money, but they're coming to us for the advice. And there's a disconnect there. Um, So people realize that they don't need two advisors. Uh, And they're coming to us many times because they're not happy with what's going on in their other firm that they're with. Uh, And that's assuming they already have an investment relationship. Um, And the reason we went to the retainer fee was the real reason was to me was about conflicts of interest. You can be a fee-only planner, but if you're an asset under management model, how is there not a conflict of interest in there? If I'm a client and I want to buy a house and I have a million-dollar portfolio with you, it's in your best interest as the advisor. From a compensation standpoint, to have me put down a small down payment, because what happens is then you're managing more of my money. But it may be in my best interest to put down a big down payment and have a smaller monthly mortgage. Um, I think majority of planners or CFPs will do the right thing for the client. Our focus was to take away that conflict of interest, so it doesn't even exist. You know, I don't want somebody coming back to me and say, "Well, I should have done this or that." Our fee is the same. It doesn't make a difference. So it there's no, I have no vested interest if you put down a big down payment or a small down payment. And the other part was we do all this work and all this number crunching for people to buy a house, let's say. They pull all this money out, and our fee goes down. It's just a disconnect to me. You know, why should we be pay, being paid based on what we're managing when we're doing so much else for the client? And then the asset manage, under management fee becomes almost like a, a, another form of a commission. That was my, my thoughts on the whole thing back then and why we made the change.
1: So you mean, you said you made that change like 12 or 13 years ago. So that's putting you right. in the early 2000s. Yeah. I, were there a lot of firms making this change? I mean, I feel like that was no before that, this time. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> You're not seeing a lot of firms now. Um, they interviewed me uh, last year, I think it was a year and a half ago, for Investment News. And um, I was interested in reading some of the comments that people wrote on it. Um, but, yeah, people today are still trying to figure this out you know, how to do this. How how does a retainer fee work? Um, And it's it's a tough transition for a lot of people. I mean, our fee is still based on their total net worth, for the most part, or investable assets, as we call it. I'd like to even refine that more, but I haven't figured that formula out yet.
1: So do you base it like on, I mean, the typical 1% AUM for advisors? I mean, is it kind of at that level? Of their assets or do you try to discount it's, it even more I mean <laughs> oh so it's
0: similar like if a client has a million dollars of investable assets no matter where it is our fee the first year or first three years is locked in at $9,000 so if you want to convert that to an AUM it's like 90 basis points um, when it as the um, investable assets goes up our fee is higher obviously uh, for 2 million I think it's 13,000 we had like a thousand dollars Uh, I believe, for every quarter of a million dollars above, you know, that million-dollar level. And this is all disclosed in our ADV to people so they can see it. We have a chart that we give them and explain it. Um, From a business standpoint, I will tell you, in 2007-8, it really made a difference in our fees because where so many planners were hurting and possibly laying off staff, taking pay cuts, uh, because the market crashed. Our fees were pretty flat. In fact, they were slightly higher. Um, Now, granted, we didn't get the big jump when the market rebounded, but we didn't take that big hit. So from a business standpoint, it's a great model because it evens out your cash flow.
1: How did your clients respond to it when you first started pitching them?
0: Um, They had no problem with it. I mean, when we first went to that direction, we um had to have a conversation with clients that we were changing. I mean, like I said, there's still a handful of clients that are under the old AUM model, and, you know, they're comfortable, and we say, fine. Um, but we had a conversation, and what we did, we locked in the fee, and we showed them that we, in some cases we were locking in a fee a little higher than what they were paying now, but showing them over the last few years how the fee fluctuated. In some cases, we discounted it a little bit. It depended on the situation. Um, from a marketing standpoint, it sh- it's a different fee structure than most advisors out there no matter where they're working so we have a we have a story to tell to say, hey, this is how we're doing it, this is how we're different. Here are the reasons why. We are truly acting as a fiduciary in your you know on your behalf and here is our fee structure that backs that up. And they appreciate that. They basically know what they're getting, and they know what they're paying. There's no questions asked. Now what happened is in two thousand seven, eight when the markets took a big hit, there were a few newer clients that all of a sudden, they look, and six months later, their portfolio is down, I don't know, 20%, let's say, and they're paying the same fee. And I explained to them that when the market's recover, it's not going to change. There were, I think, one situation where somebody I knew that I said, you know something, we'll reduce our fee. It was a very new relationship, and I said, you know, we don't have to, but we'll be fair and we'll reduce it. And when the market's recovered, we went back to our old fee. That's all. Um, and But again, that was a rare situation. You know, we want to be fair. We're looking for long-term relationships with clients. I'm not concerned about getting every penny out of them now because if they're a long-term client, it'll all come back to us and it'll work for both sides. And that's that's been our philosophy all along.
1: So with this retainer, I mean, do people write you a check? Do you pull it out of their accounts? Like what is logistics no, the, of that?
0: The initial fee, they usually write a check. Um, and then the ongoing fees, we deduct from their accounts on a quarterly basis for the most part just like it you know we do and, and others do with asset under management. We upload it to Schwab and we'll take the fees and no issues. Um so it's all disclosed. Uh in some cases the initial fee people will say take it from my account, uh, which means we have to first do all the paperwork to transfer it if it's not at Schwab and it's rare that we'll do that. You know, we want clients to write that check because when they're writing the check they really understand what the costs are. When right. they come out of their account, they don't always see it.
1: So you don't do any where you like, draft the retainer out of the checking account or anything like that?
0: No. Again, we'll take it. You know, In some cases where clients have already had Schwab accounts, and we just have to move the account over uh, to our master, in a sense. Um, once it's done, that's like one, pay, one form, an easy thing. And it shows up the next day, we'll take the fee out of that account. But if they have it in another brokerage account and we're doing transfers and all that, there's a lot of paperwork involved in this stuff to get it done. So it's rare that we will uh, wait until that's all done and then take the fee out, the initial fee that is out of that account.
1: So if you were starting over today, would you start with this retainer model?
0: Yes. That's an easy one. Uh, there'd be no reason not to start with it because, it's, to me, it's, it's one that it differentiates people from other advisors. Um, And I think it fits well in the fiduciary model. Uh, And for younger people starting out in this profession, uh, I think it's extremely important to have a story and why you're different than somebody else. And there's not a lot of planners out there doing retainer models right now. And I think it's going to become a bigger thing, though.
1: With the client that comes to you who's a high-income earner with very low assets, do you have like a minimum that you have to charge every year before you take on a client?
0: what we do is we start with those clients because in most cases, those people have a lot of planning needs. They just don't have a lot of assets to manage. So we charge them $2,500 up front. And then after the first six months at the end of each quarter, we fill them $375 a quarter. So it's $1,500 a year. And I know a lot of planners talk about doing like a monthly draft and doing, you know, whatever to us. It's just easier to do one on a quarterly basis. If we have a, if we opened an account at let's say Schwab and there's money there, we'll take it directly from the account, or we'll send them a bill, and they'll pay it um The more we can do directly is better because it just avoids having to wait you know for somebody to pay the fee every you know uh it takes them a month to pay it two months and you send in a second bill, and it's just not efficient <laughs> a way of doing it uh but if that's the only way, we'll do it so but it comes out to three seventy five a quarter. Uh, there's some we've done at 500 a quarter, but eventually the idea is that they can grow and fit into what we call our wealth management. Because what we do is we look at wealth management as financial planning and investment management together. Some clients don't have the investments, but they have the financial planning needs, and that's usually our younger, higher earner professionals that need the financial planning, but not the investment side. But they still need some investment help. I mean, they have a 401K or a 403B. They may have some money. And it's usually designed, I guess, for people with, I'm going to say, two 250000 or less. You know, if they have 300000 $400,000, we will start to charge them a little bit more and do it under our wealth management. And the other difference on the investment side, uh, for the wealth management people, we're generating reports, ongoing reports, for the financial planning-only clients, as we call these people that don't have a lot of investments, we're not generating an ongoing investment report. And the other thing we've done is uh, a number of years ago, we started to send clients monthly reports where we upload to our website and they can log in to get it. And we give the clients an option, either monthly, online, or quarterly in the mail. And I would say 75%, 80% of our clients do it monthly online, um, and I will tell you, it saves uh, probably a lot of money in paper, in postage, uh, but more so we've taken a two-day process and condensed it down to about an hour and a half because we don't have to mail out all those reports, stacks of them. Uh, and what we find, I would say 20%, 25% of the people look at the report on a monthly basis. Um, they just don't look. which That's okay. You know, they know we're here. Clients are happy and we discuss it, but that's their choice. It's available to them.
1: Well, one of the things that I'm finding so interesting uh, is there's a lot of talk about, like, serving the underserved. And at that price point, I mean, that's just over a little bit more than $100 a month that people are paying you for solid financial advice i mean you guys really have this model to serve that demographic
0: well yes but you know the underserved can be different uh groups you have the underserved who are the high earning or or young professionals let's not even say high earning i mean they could be earning one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which in some parts of the country is high earning in new york you're barely able to make ends meet probably unfortunately Uh, but they need help and then you have the underserved, which are people who don't have good income, never will. Um, you know, they're struggling to make ends meet. And that's that's a whole nother group. And that's the group that really, and that's when I mentioned earlier, I'm on the uh, Board of Trustees for the Foundation for Financial Planning. That's the group they're really trying to help in the military and so on. Um, because those are the people that nobody wants to help. The young professional, the problem they have is they go into the bank, the brokerage firms, and what happens is, there's no products to sell, so there's really nothing they can do for them. So they'll put them into an insurance product or, you know, hopefully sell them, you know, some investment. Um, So that's where they're missing. The, there's a market there that they're not able to serve properly. Um, the independent planner can definitely do that. Or the, there are planners out there who work on an hourly basis. Uh, we don't do that. You know, the problem I've always had with hourly is that, Bottom line is uh, many times people don't come back. You do all this work and then two years later they come back and if I recommended a certain portfolio now and they come back in two years because they haven't wanted to pay the fee or whatever, what happens is things change. We may have changed our portfolios and they did not get that advice. So financial planning is a process and it needs to be ongoing. Sometimes there's a lot of work involved, sometimes very little. So my, my concern always is people who say... You come back when you're ready, or I'll send you a card. like like going to the doctor or the dentist. How often do you not go because you don't want to be bothered with it? It's like torture. It's um, You don't want to pay the fee, maybe. We always want to encourage people to call us, email us, for anything that comes up in their life, not to wait until it's too late where we can't help them. And I don't think, you know, in many cases that hourly, what I've seen in my, my business, the hourly fee structure doesn't, Open the door for people to be calling all the time because they're afraid they're going to get a bill.
1: Right, I, and from everybody that I've heard on that hourly, I mean, I've heard that across the board with people on hourly planning. Yeah, well, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and you know, Cheryl Garrett Network. I mean, they built the whole model based on that. And you know, I know people in that network, and some of them they do hourly. Some are doing hourly, but also doing assets under management and other few structures too to supplement it. And that's fine. You know, the question is, are you an ethical planner? If you're ethical, compensation should not be the focus. Unfortunately, it is many times, but I know a lot of ethical planners who are commission-based planners who do a great job. And I know a lot of, I I should say a lot, I know some planners who are fee-only, who I wouldn't trust with anything. And that has nothing to do with being CFP, non-CFP. I mean, this profession is still growing and changing, and there's still so much growth ahead of it. There's no set perfect way of doing this.
1: How big is your staff? I mean, how big is your firm, I guess, would be?
0: A small firm. We have about $170 million under management based on SEC, you know, how they rec- record it. We've got five people. There's myself. I have a full-time, um, well, before the assistant. We have a another partner in the firm with a minority partner, and she's a CFP, been with me just about 12 years now, and she is not someone who brings in business but works closely with all my clients, me with the clients and so on. We have another uh, minority partner. She has her own tax practice separate from this. And uh, she's been in this business a long time. I know her, probably 25 years. Uh, she joined us a number of years, probably about, I think it's six, seven years ago. So she's got really two businesses in a sense uh, the tax business, which actually generates clients for her, as well as the uh, financial planning side and she has a separate office for her tax work, and then we have a full-time planning assistant who is also our admin person that we hired uh, just about two years ago, and she was a recent college graduate, and we just hired someone a month ago who is a uh, CFP candidate. He just uh, finished the CFP program, and is going to be sitting for the exam in November, and he started with us, uh, like I said, just recently, and his goal is to work with us and you know, with clients and, uh, you know, not necessarily be a, a rainmaker, but somebody who can be there and be part of the team to work with clients. And then we have somebody else who's really used to work with us full-time as an admin years ago, but he lives in Seattle, and he basically does some of our Bill bill paying and a little bit of the bookkeeping uh, on an hourly, you know, part-time basis. Uh, and he just logs into our systems and takes care of that. And uh, so it's basically... Uh, five of us and then versus Seattle. So we have a very small staff um, and, you know, we're able to meet the client's needs and take care of what we need to. Um, and it works.
1: Well, and I'm assuming leveraging a lot of technology and it's crazy to me. It You got your first computer like back in the, I mean, it's just, there's so much has changed.
0: My first computer, I'll never forget, it was an IBM XT with an Epson printer. And uh, I still have the receipt that I bought it from a place called the Computer Factory. It was almost uh, uh, close as I think, about $5,500. And I think it had 20 megabytes of uh, memory and uh, or hard drive. And, and the world has changed considerably. I mean, I was in this business before you had the Internet and uh, being able to log on to see things.
1: You've done a lot of adapting and I guess not changing with the times, but there's been a lot of innovation, just even just in technology. Like, what are your thoughts? I mean, going forward, like the next 30 years, I mean, how should advisors be approaching the changing demographics?
0: It's first of all, I'll say I've seen more changes probably in the last two or three years than I've seen in the year 20 plus years before that. Really? Wow. Uh, Yeah, it's just the technology. I mean, the idea that today. You know we use money guide pro we use juncture we use portfolio center uh the idea that i can take uh information that we download into portfolio center from tia craft from schwab and also we use another program Cumulate, which is an account aggregation program to bring in other assets so i can download all those into portfolio center we then every day put that into juncture from juncture i can hit another button and export it right into money guide pro bottom line is we used to have to do all manual entries for all this stuff. This takes away obviously manual entries um uh, no, you know mistakes are not there um from making a mistake and putting you know different numbers in uh and it can all be done within seconds or minutes versus hours and hours and a lot of that's just happened in the last few years with the integration of these programs you know we were one of the you know juncture, which is one of the better. I consider one of the better and bigger CRM programs. We're not using the cloud version. We're still using the desktop version. And uh, we were one of the first users. I mean, I know Greg Friedman, who started the company, and it was originally wasn't going to be used for the whole profession. It was really designed for him with a programmer, and he was you know, going to sell it to a few advisors to just help pay the cost. And before long, everybody heard about it, and it became Juncture. So my goal has always been, to try to stay ahead of the curve with technology or anything in this profession, I think our retainer fee is ahead of the curve. The technology we started to use with our CRM, later on with other programs, trying to do this efficiently. Um, I don't want to. I like to learn from others, but I also don't want to learn late after the fact. I want to be one of the leaders there, not one of the followers. And I, you know, being older, technology is different. You know, the whole social media thing. I mean, we're changing our web portal. We used, um, you know, right now where we upload our reports on a monthly basis, we create a PDF. We're going to a new portal, Modest Spark, which will allow us to upload information and clients can then go in. And it's more of a, I guess, a user-friendly technology and presence for especially younger people who are more computer savvy and look more like a website than you know, the current things we're using. For me, it's been a struggle because I'm trying to figure out how to how to use this properly and get all the data in there. So that's been a little bit of a struggle. Um, but I think it's something that, you know, especially millennials and are going to look at. This is the type of interface that they want to have. So I think it's just something more so for the future than for the current. And I think over the next couple of years, that's going to take place. You know, people are seeing what, what's out there. And if you wait too long, you're going to be behind the curve. Uh, But I see the next couple of years that the technology is just going to become even more efficient. It's just the integration between all these companies, uh, something that I think is so important that has helped push this profession a lot further, a lot faster. And I think the fee models are going to change. You know, people I talk to about the retainer fee, people are interested in it. It's a different way of doing it, and I think you're going to see more and more of that, and I think you're going to see uh, less of a reliance on commissions. And this whole Department of Labor you know, fiduciary thing is going to be changing a lot of people's views on the business, and I think positively, uh, because I think we should be fiduciaries. If people are coming in to trust us with their future, how is it in their best interest I sell them a product that they don't necessarily need? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And it may mean that we make a little less money sometimes, but we build a better practice. And I think that's the key.
1: Let's take a minute and talk to the people who are listening to this podcast who are working for another advisor who is resistant to a lot of this change that's happening in the industry. What advice would you give to to that young person who sees all these changes and wants to start implementing these in their firm but is getting pushback?
0: My advice would be that they need to sit down and maybe have some case studies of other planners who have done things to have that kind of discussion. You know, the problem is that they say, well, I want to do this and the advisor just won't do it. They can walk away and start their own firm, but are they walking away with any clients and how are they going to pay themselves? I mean, that becomes the whole struggle. And there are some firms out there that are hiring younger people out there to be part of it, the, you know, planners who are open to a lot of the changes, but if they're really finding it's a struggle, I would just, you know, sit down with somebody and say, you hired me because I can bring a lot to this practice, and I want to learn a lot from you. And how can we make that work and have an open dialogue about it? Um, I think one of the things that I run into, is, um, I guess, on both sides of the spectrum, older planners who feel like, well, you know, these young kids just want to come in, and... They just want ownership right away and they don't want to work and I, they don't know what I did and how I built the firm. And younger people see the older person doesn't want to change and they're resistant to change. Now, if we're truly financial planners and doing the best job for our client, one of the things that I learned early on in CFP1, and unfortunately I don't teach this uh, anymore as part of the program, was communication skills, how to ask the right questions, how to listen. And if you're a good planner on both you know, younger older You should be asking the right questions to each other and being able to listen to each other. If you're not, then it may not be a good fit. But older planners need to realize that, you know, millennials and younger generation, they're bringing a lot of value to this business. But how how to utilize that and get the most out of it, that it's a win-win, is difficult. And if you have a preconceived notion that younger people have an attitude, that's a problem. Because, you know, a lot of people I've met don't have that attitude, but people think they do. And that that's, I think, uh, when you look and there's a stereotype there, I think that's a problem. I mean, I have two millennial children. Uh, my son's 25 and my daughter's almost 23. And, you know, I, I learned so much from them. And hopefully they're learning from me. You know, maybe they, hopefully they listen. But, you know, it's different when you're a parent. <laughs> uh, but my son said something interesting to me a while ago. He said, you know, he sees it with friends that they turn 25, 26. They they, they get a little bit more mature. And I've read where at that age is when they realize that their parents weren't necessarily wrong. Um, and I think there's something to take away from that for older planners and younger planners working together is how do we make this relationship work that there's a lot of value on both sides if we listen to each other? And I think the problem is the older planners can't dictate. You know, they, Again, the story is I built this firm, I know what needs to be done, And bottom line is, sure, they built it, and it's working. But are they getting a lot of new clients that are younger? I mean, there's a lot more. I forget who wrote something about this, but the future value of a young client is much greater than the future value of an older client who's paying you a lot of money now. And that's the thing. You need to build that up. Now, a lot of older planners may not be interested in building that up, that that younger clientele for the future. And... That's the risk they take with their firm, Um, you know, as far as evaluation and so on going down the road. uh, And the younger planner has to look and say, is this the place for me?
1: So that communication isn't really taught in the CFP program right now. If somebody is looking to improve that in themselves, where should they go?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, That's a tough one. I mean, I think a lot of it is just who you are. You know, if you are somebody that can listen to people, because communications to me is, is not always about talking it's about listening and you know that that's a key part to it because you have to listen to what people are saying Um, and we have great relationships with clients we have clients that will not do anything until they call me Um, I've had clients I had a psychologist who called me his money psychologist I've had clients who tell me thanking me for the marriage counseling thanking me for you know uh, therapy sessions and I'm not a trained therapist but I'm I listen And then I can ask questions to get people to open up. And it's giving people a comfortable place, making them feel comfortable in the surroundings. You know, uh, one thing I learned early on with this communication stuff is, never ask people why they did something. Because when you ask them, why did you do that? It's putting them on the defensive that, oh, I made the wrong decision. Um, But many times the first question is, oh, why did you buy that investment? And why did you make that decision? And you're forcing someone to defend something that obviously you feel wasn't the right thing. And you don't want to have a defensive relationship with the client. We never judge. I think that's a big part of it. Don't be judgmental. And this is important for, you know, people just in general. When you start judging people, you close the door. If you are not judgmental, you can open the door and have the dialogue that needs to be done. (laughs) And that's, that's the important part of being able to you know, have that conversation where people feel comfortable with you. If they don't feel comfortable, they're not going to disclose information. They're not disclosing information. You're not going to be able to do the, the the right job for them, which means you're going to have a short-term relationship or not a great relationship with the client.
1: One of the things that I hear a lot of people say is they want to work with their own generation because they know how to communicate well with their own generation. Do you find that those communication skills cross generational lines? Or, I mean, do you have to approach generations differently on how you communicate with them or kind of what's been your experience?
0: Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, my experience is that if you listen to people and don't judge, I don't think it matters how old you are. If you're an older person, and I say older in the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever age, and you start to talk down to people, you know, I have experience, so this is how we've done it all the time. and. There's one thing about teaching how we've done it. It's another about saying, hey, this is how we've done it, but please give me feedback of what works and doesn't, what you think could be changed. Because otherwise you're just dictating It's almost like a parent-child relationship. And that's not what you want to have. You want to have an open, like I said, dialogue. I mean, I look at people in my firm. I don't care how old they are to me. They're, we're all equals. You know, I mean, sure, I have a lot of knowledge, and they want to, you know, sometimes I'm amazed that people want to listen to, you know, some information that I have like old when we talk about the profession and like we've talked today. Um, sometimes I, I wonder, is it really that valuable? Is it just, you know, an older person just going off about, you know, the past, you know, you know, like grandma telling you what, how they walked 20 miles to get to, to school in the snow. But I think, you know, when you can have the dialogue both ways, it's important. And I don't think it's a communication style. I think the differences in communication style is the technology. And that's one thing I think you know the texting the social use of social media, where a lot of older planners uh, and when I say older um uh, you know people in their fifties sixties, whatever, are not comfortable with it. I mean at times I'm not as comfortable with it we We've done posting on our website and twitter and we use the social media company to to push information out, and we stop paying it and you know for it because the idea is that we can do this on our own. And we're not posting that much, but post uh, one little thing here and there. We're amazed at how many people will look at it versus when we were posting articles that we thought would be of interest to people. And they weren't looking at it. So it's more personal, I would say. Um, But I think it's the use of social media that's the difference. My concern always is for when you're using all the social media, are you losing touch, though? I think the face-to-face contact is so important. You know, you can Skype and FaceTime uh, when you have meetings, but you know, and you can see people's reactions because so much of a d- discussion is how do people react to something. And seeing that in their face, seeing that in their body movement, is so different than, you know, having a conversation online where you can't see that. Because body actions, I think, are a big part of communications. And when you see a client or you're sitting there talking to somebody and all of a sudden their arms become folded and they become very stiff, you can see that they're not comfortable. Or on the other hand, I see it many times when people come in kind of uncomfortable. And as we're talking, you see them relaxing in their chair. You see them spreading out a little bit more and becoming more comfortable. I can't see that unless I'm usually face-to-face and maybe Skyping. You can see some of that as well, but I think it's it's still something in between you. Um, and I think that's the part that I would encourage people to continue is having the face-to-face. That's why I don't think robo-advisors, you know, yeah, it's great, it's cheap, or whatever, but I don't think it, it works for many people who need financial planning because you don't have that one-on-one relationship, and that that's important. So I think there's a combination of how we communicate. Somebody in my generation has a lot to learn in using some of the social technology, uh, social media, and technology. And I think people who are younger generations have a lot to learn and experience using face-to-face contact as well.
1: I heard a phrase recently um, called, called mutual mentoring, and that seems very much like what you're talking about. Yeah,
0: exactly. That's uh, a great phrase, um, without a doubt. And I think that's something, if you could remember that for our call next week for the retreat, <laughs> because that's something <laughs> that I think could be, it, that's what it is. We're, we we want to mentor each other, but both sides have to be open to it. Mm-hmm.
1: So one of the things that I've really appreciated about you, Scott, is kind of just this focus on how do we help the next generation of financial planners and kind of this intergenerational, I don't want to say conflict, but how do we help the generations learn from each other, that mutual mentoring relationship? I mean, the first just really basic question is how is this a problem and you said not to ask a why question, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. <laughs> why, why do you care about this? I mean, what what's the consequence of it?
0: Um, I care about it because I care about this profession. This profession has given a lot to me, and I've given a lot to the profession. And I always – you know, I, I got into this I, – I I was different than I guess a lot of people who got into financial planning. And when I was doing it back then and I got in in the 80s, you know, you saw a lot more career change throughout the 80s and 90s when I was teaching at NYU. All you saw, and I taught at Baruch and another school, all you saw were career changers or people in the financial world, bankers and insurance people, who were probably in their 30s, 40s at that point, who were looking to get into financial planning because they realized this is the wave of the future. You didn't see people in their you know, 20s. Um, that's what changed a lot. But over the years, I've given a lot to the profession and I've learned a lot from the profession by networking with people. I mean, that's really the important part. So I think for the profession to keep growing, I always said back then that the real growth of the profession, the next step in being a profession will be when kids, I say kids, kids come out of high school and they go to college and they say, I want to be a financial planner, just like they want to be an accountant, a doctor. Uh, When they go and say, I want to be a financial planner, now you have a profession. And back then... You didn't have undergraduate programs.
1: Now you do,
0: the Texas Tech, Virginia Tech, you know, they have really started with the undergrads and you do have those people going to say, I want to be a financial planner and coming out of school, so open to it. Um and you know, when we interviewed for our job we actually hired somebody who is um a little bit older, uh in his thirties, not somebody who was, you know, fresh out of school and a variety of reasons, but we interviewed a bunch of people who were fresh out of school, and I was really impressed with a lot of these these people coming out of these programs. Uh, different than five years ago, six years ago, when I interviewed people who were probably in their mid 20s, because back then I got some of the typical millennial generation stereotypes. Today, some of the people coming out who, out of school, they're like they're so open to things, and they have so much knowledge from these programs they don't know how to use it but they have the technology skills and the background from going to through that two or three or four year program and I was impressed with that Um, and I think for the future that's the important growth of this profession is going to school wanting to be a financial planner coming out it's not the career changers you know again I was unusual I wasn't a career changer Um, I was and that's where I look at and I say you know what people are going through now it's similar to what I went through, because I in 1982 when I uh, got into this profession in insurance and such, I was not a career changer. I was a year or so out of school, and that's that's a similarity that I see and I can identify with. It's just in many ways much easier today with the technology, but it's much more expensive, and that's the other problem, the cost of a lot of the technology. There's cheaper ways of doing the technology that I'm not even aware of that people talk about it. I'm like, wow, never thought of that. So um, that, that's where I feel I want to give back and help younger people as well in growing. I don't care if it's in my practice and another practice independently on their own. It doesn't matter. Because if you give something back, they'll give back to the profession and continue that process.
1: You touched on how like an older advisor, if you were the older generations would want to influence the younger generations. Can you talk about the benefit that the younger generations get from this intergenerational relationships that are out there?
0: Yeah, I, I think the younger planner will learn so much about the profession. It's one thing to understand and learn what we went through and when we used to do quarterly reports manually and print them out and whatever, but learning you know, some of the basics of the profession, but learning how to deal with clients. You know, you're in your 20s or early 30s, and you haven't dealt with clients. You haven't experienced what people are going through, and, and that's really the key. I mean, when I bought my first house, um, I went through a mortgage process that I learned so much. And I used to advise about mortgages, but till I did it, I didn't understand really. Uh, you know, recently, uh, in the last few years, we've had some family illnesses, unfortunately. And it had to do with estate planning and stuff, and I've advised on estate planning and, and, and situations and learning through clients of what they went through and whatever, but when you go through it yourself, you really it takes hold you really understand it better. so younger people can see working with older planners working with them, they'll have an opportunity to work with their clients, hopefully, and see what they're going through to gain some of those experiences sooner, because bottom line is you could have all the book knowledge in the world doesn't make you a good planner. It doesn't make you a good doctor. doesn't make you a good whatever. It's the actual practical experiences. And if you want to have them happen faster and sooner, working with an older planner, as long as they're open to bringing you into situations, not just sitting behind a desk and never having any client face time, you can really learn what happens in life and life's experiences through others until you get to experience it on your own.
1: Well, and one thing I just kind of want to add is it's not necessarily just your boss that you have to have this relationship with. I mean, it can be mentors, it can be the larger financial planning community as well.
0: Correct, without a doubt. And I think the Financial Planning Association, FPA, is a great place to do that. Because there's so many people out there that are so willing to help and be be mentors to be answer questions. I mean, One thing I know about my generation, and, you know, I'm at the uh, tail end of the baby boomers, uh, we're so willing to talk to people many times. You know, if you ask questions, we love to answer questions. You know, part of it is talking about ourselves maybe, but really to help you understand and learn. So when I can have, you know, like a a conversation like this, I can go on for hours um, because I just like to, you know, educate people what's out there. Um, Same thing with clients. I like to educate clients.
1: A young person listening to this who wants kind of that wisdom that that older generation has to, I guess, fast track your, their career, if you would, How? where does somebody go for that?
0: Well, I think one, you know, through like the Financial Planning Association, FPA, going to the conferences, you know, they have their annual conference B, they call it, uh, this year it's in Baltimore, and there's a lot of everybody there. There's planners there that are real planners, there are insurance agents. Uh, mutual fund people there's a lot so you got to when you go to a conference like that talk you got to find the right communities and the right people because sometimes you may talk to somebody that you really can't understand why they're you know from an insurance side but the other thing is you learn from every situation when I worked with another planner years ago I learned a lot of good and I learned a lot of bad and I knew when I went out on my own what I didn't want to do and what I wanted to do so you want to make sure in every conversation you're taking away things that doesn't always have to be things you agree with. It could be things you disagree with. But then you could take that information and do some more research to say, hmm, maybe that person had a point or no. My, I stand by what I believe in. But at least you've done the research and you have a basis to make that decision. Uh, the other conference is the uh, retreat. And retreat uh, for FPA retreat is a great conference. I mean, if you go back to its origins, uh, it was done on a college campus in the summer, and people stayed in dorms. Uh, and as our generation has gotten older, we decided dorms was no longer the fit. You know, in a, an unair-conditioned dorm and eating in the uh, in the uh, you know cafeteria there may not be the best, even though I think some of us, including myself, would actually enjoy it. I mean, as long as we have the air conditioning. But that really became a great learning environment shared information over the years and this is when I was on the ICFP and then FPA board uh, I was chair of education and they started at the ICFP which was the Institute of Certified Financial Planners um, we started having a master's retreat was which was geared for the more experienced planner and then they had their annual conference and then they had also we, we developed something called bridge the gap program which was really a program designed for younger people in the profession of how to bridge that gap to get to where they want to be, and how to use their CFP marks and so on. Um, and then with the merger of FPA, it became where retreat has this environment that it's only experienced planners. I chaired uh, the 2003 retreat, and what I tried to do was to try to bring in uh, people with less experience, because I realized that's where we all learned. I mean, we used to go to a conference or a retreat, and... There was Don Phillips from Morningstar when Morningstar was in its infancy talking about Morningstar and their Morningstar pages, which was basically a, a print book every month that you got then. It wasn't online or anything like today. Um, but we learn from each other. And retreat is that type of an environment. So I would hope that people don't feel intimidated that this is, oh, this is just experienced planners. Because the bottom line, when you go to a conference uh, or you know a, a meeting like retreat, you basically are among some of the elite in the profession and you have a great place to start to meet people and learn from them. And what I've seen, there are people who've been going for 10, 20 years or more and they met at retreat years and years ago. And maybe they only see each other at retreat every year, but that's where it goes back to. And you realize there's a cost factor. Uh, you know, it it has become more expensive. Um, and I would hope that somehow we can figure out a way to bring the cost down for uh, you know younger planners who don't have the resources. But you know it is also a financial thing. You're putting on a meeting in a hotel and there's a certain cost factor. And I understand that part too. You don't you don't want it to be so big that you lose that intimacy. Uh, Retreat usually has between 250 to 350 people. Um, and then the other thing to get involved with is the next gen in FPA. Because that's a community that's based on 35 and under, I believe it is, for people to talk with each other. But also, next-gen shouldn't feel that they need to isolate themselves. And this is something like a retreat where we want to bring everybody together to learn from each other. I think it's a great community to support each other, but also they need to interface with the older planners, and the older planners have to be open to bringing next-gen people in into conversations.
1: I've gone there the last two years, I believe. Okay. And again, I would say it's one, it's become my have to go to conference uh, just right. because of the quality of the people and the quality of the sessions. And it's not just, you know, distribution strategies for IRAs. It is really kind of digging into that how do you do financial planning well and how do I really make myself a better planner? And then the people that I meet there are just incredible. And I've just developed some really, really great relationships with some just amazing planners. So if you're a young person out there thinking about retreat, it is definitely a conference that you want to get to, I would say, sooner rather than later. And it is, in my opinion, definitely worth the cost.
0: Um, I would fully agree with that. And somebody who started their career going to retreats early and somebody who's chaired a bunch of them, I think it is probably... Premier place to go. And again, I, I think I've said this before separately. I, I don't like to call it a conference because it's more of a gathering, but obviously it is some sort of a conference. It's the premier place to go. It's the place you want to be at to learn and to meet new people. And uh, it's been said over the years some of the best sessions, the best learning opportunities are in the hallways, in between sessions, or at night over a few drinks. That's where you sometimes will. Get more information because you could have that conversation with you know one on one or two or three people joining into a conversation and sharing uh because you know the bottom line is the older generation in this business, like I said before, loves to share you know there there are war stories that they want to share of what they went through, but they're also open to answering the questions that people will have, so it's one thing to sit there and listen to somebody go on and on it's another thing for that person to be able to ask questions so that you can learn as well.
1: And what i found is that the advisors who go to the FPA retreat are so much more open to that idea of that mutual mentoring um, than I think the average advisor. Maybe the I feel like a lot of young people have really bad experiences, um, but I think that the retreat really brings out the best.
0: I agree with you 100%. I think that it's, you're getting the cream of the crop is really what it comes down to. My opinion, not to say that there aren't great planners out there who don't go to retreat, there are, and I know some of them, and I know people that go to retreat maybe every few years they don't go as often and then there are people like me who will figure out a way to get to retreat every year, no matter what um because it's 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 um it's family, and you know one of the stories I was talking the other day or a few weeks ago, you know I came to retreat this year um i don't know were you with i, I don't know they have this closing. Circle, which you know, sometimes is a little too touchy-feely for people. But whoever's left, whoever wants to share, you know, what they got out of it or whatever, they just pass the mic along. And uh, and I didn't say this then, but because I, I don't think I would have gotten through it. Um, I had just I came to retreat this year uh, a day late because my father-in-law had passed away. But I knew that I needed to get to retreat. I mean, I knew I wanted to be there because I was sharing the next one, but that wasn't the main reason. I just knew that. I just wanted to be there. It's just comforting. And at the end of the retreat, sitting there listening to people, you know, what I was thinking was, this isn't like anything else. This is like family. This is like I can feel, you know, comfortable. And I know a lot of planners who feel that way, that you come into a place where you are basically invited in as long as you're open to that invitation and there are no age differences, gender differences, whatever. It's all about people who understand what this profession's about and are comforting, and it's just a warm place to be, as long as you are willing to be open and warm and accept that, which is tough for some people, but as you come along, it's just, like I said, it's like family, and I I encourage younger people to come to retreat and start to build those relationships for their future. Maybe they'll meet people they'll be in a study group with. Maybe they'll meet somebody across the country that when they have some questions, they can talk. And, you know, something with the technology today, I have all the faith that younger generation and millennials will figure out a way to use the technology and build on something that was started years ago and to make it even better.
1: Well, and I think it's such how it's so hard being a young advisor in the financial planning profession. And But what a great resource in place to have to kind of get through those first really the first decade or so of your career um so i'm a huge proponent of the retreat and how important it is for young people especially uh, to get there and really use that as a foundation block for their career if you would
0: without a doubt and you know something if it's too expensive at times um share a room you know yep. meet somebody that you know you met on the past one and, you know, you can sh- people do that all the time where, you know, you, you put two people in a room and, and you've cut your costs down somewhat for your uh, uh, hotel and there's ways of doing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Scott, as we kind of wrap up, what advice would you give to the young planner that's out there or any other thoughts that you have uh, before we wrap up?
0: I, I would just say my advice is to be engaged and not just be engaged with technology and social media. Because many times people say, oh, I'm engaged, I'm on this program, I'm on that platform, this, that. Be engaged face-to-face and have conversations as well. It's, it's a combination of the two. I'm not saying social media is bad. There's definitely a place for it, but I think there's a place for both methods of com- uh, conversation and just be open to that more so than you know, some people may be. And I think a lot of younger people are very much open to that, and there's some who think uh, they're engaged because they're chatting on their cell phone. And I, you know, I want to say to people, put down your cell phone for a little bit uh, and stop, you know, having a conversation with the person down the street or next to you on their cell phone. Have it face to face. But there are times I'm guilty of doing the same thing. You know, that's something that uh, older people have uh, come to accept, and uh, you know, it's a very fast, quick, easy way of doing it. But be engaged in all levels of communication.
1: Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Financial Planner. Now what? I hope you enjoyed this episode and were inspired by Scott's story. Join us again next time as we find ways for you to fast track your career. All I can think of when I was doing that outro was Scott's tots.